Thanks for listening to the second episode of the Armenian Music Podcast. I'm Rafi Maneshian. Today's episode is entitled, An Armenian in America Part 2, My Continued Conversation with Arad Dinkjan. listening to a piece called Going With Abandon from Night Ark's 1997 release entitled In Wonderland. This was the third of four Night Ark albums, with the last one being released in 1999 called Petals on Your Path. Both albums were on the EMRC record label. We'll continue with part two of my conversation with Ada Dinkjan in just a moment. However, a quick thanks to everyone who listened to the debut podcast last week. The feedback has been fantastic so far with listeners from various parts of the world. Keep spreading the news and hit that subscribe button. Let's continue the conversation with Ada Dinkjan. Ada, um, as we kind of um, kind of delve a little bit deeper in this conversation, um, I, I wanted to kind of mention a, a story that maybe not everybody kind of knows about that uh, we talked about you know, a good 14, 15 years ago. And, um, you know, as you tra- transitioned, let's say, from Onik's Kid to Ara Dinkchan, really, as far as your professional career, um, I feel like the Naima Ensemble may have been that transitionary period um, that kind of, you know, moved you into the Night Arc era. But um, there's this incredibly funny story and um, cool story about you being at the Montreux Jazz Festival after you guys had kind of graduated and you had, um, you had basically 
kind of a band of brothers of musicians that just decided to, it's almost like a, an, you know, an, an actress from, you know, Chicago wanting to make it big in LA. You, you guys ended up going to Switzerland. Um, but how you actually got on stage is a pretty funny story. If you don't mind telling that one. I, I had forgotten that I had told you that. So you, you want me to tell you that story again? Absolutely. I think people would love it. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I had a group, uh, in college. I went to a, a conservatory in Hartford, Connecticut called Hart College of Music. And, and there, uh, I met, uh, a black guitar player, uh, who played kind of jazz and funk and, and was also into Mahavishnu orchestra and all the Shakti and all this other stuff and a classical violinist, uh, and this, uh, hippie who played uh, Indian tabla and me, some Armenian kid playing the oud. And I don't know, we just started uh, getting together every day and, and writing music and, and playing. And so we had this little group called the Naima Ensemble, uh, named after uh, Coltrane's wife's uh, name. Anyway, um, we decided to go to Europe uh, upon graduating uh, and specifically Switzerland, where there was the annual Montreal Jazz Festival, maybe at the time, the most famous jazz festival in the world. Well, to try to make a long story short, again, it's one of the very rare moments of my aggressive action. We heard that the, the, the head of the festival, Claude Nobbs, was having a party at his apartment. And I walked to his apartment and as I was trying to get in, I see that there's there's press, there's cameraman, there's there's Dizzy Gillespie sitting there, there's uh, Rick Wakeman sitting next to Van Morrison, and there's Betty Carter over there. I'm, I was kind of overwhelmed, and there's knobs, mm -hmm. you know, running around giving people champagne and talking, and everywhere he went, there were these cameras following him because it's it's kind of the news of the month, you know, when the Montreal Jazz Festival is on. And anyway, somehow I I, I snuck in there and. And I went up to him and I said, can I have just a moment with you? And uh, with his French accent, who are you? You know, I said, just, just, I just need two minutes of your time and then I'll be out of your hair. Somehow, miraculously, he takes me into a room, but the cameramen are following. And he says, you have two minutes. And I said, well, this is my name and I have this group and I'm giving you the opportunity to say that you discovered us by putting us on the festival. Oh, that's gangster. I mean, that oh, is just gangster. And he, he said, who are you? Get out of my house. I said, this is your only chance. We're going to be big. And I'm telling you, I want to give you the chance. He, he threw me out. <laughs> Before he threw me out, he did ask me where I was staying. I was staying in some hostel or something, you know? Well, don't you know, the next day, I get a, a, a note from the festival saying, you are on Friday with Dollar Brand, Mingus Dynasty, and Tito Puente. You guys must have absolutely freaked. Well, and my, my, my fellow musicians, they, they started yelling at me like, oh, man, what did you do now? What are we going to do? And I yelled back at them, this is what we wanted, you know? <laughs> like, we were scared, but let's do it. So, well, we, we went on. We were the opening act, of course. They gave us a half an hour, which for us was, I think, three songs. And after we played, 
people were clapping and standing and we were walking backstage kind of crying and like very emotional and hugging each other. And I noticed that Claude Nobbs was having an argument with Tito Puente. And I kind of eavesdropped and Tito Puente was saying, I'm not going on. You, you advertised the Latin percussion jazz ensemble. It should have been Tito Puente and the Latin percussion jazz. I'm not going on, <laughs> you know? So Claude Nobbs, very cool. Of course, he has to deal with these things all the time. He says, yeah. okay, Tito, you don't want to go on? You hear that applause? I'll just send these kids on for another half an hour. And we're like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so, I, I would assume that Tito Puente went back on. <laughs> That's, that is hilarious. And, um, you know, um, obviously, you know, you have this incredible experience. And, uh, you know, you get, to, you get back to New York City, uh, to New Jersey. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a little, little tragedy, you know, obviously that, that happens. Um, with with your friend, uh, your dear friend Sid Clark, uh, passing away, and was there a kind of a period of darkness and a um, kind of just a, a period where the lights went out creatively? And That's exactly what it was. Uh, I when when Sid, my dear friend and 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 the guitar player in that band, when he died of a, a blood clot in his lung at the age of thirty, uh, he was my my partner, my writing partner. Um, he had this great incredible sense of harmony uh and i had this ability for melody and the two of us would just sit down and and write pieces and when when he was gone um yes dark and i and i i didn't even want to play music anymore it was uh, it was a terrible uh terrible blow well for his family of course but for me too yes so when you kind of decided to pick up the pieces from your your musical soulmate, basically, and your friend. Um, the, the, Sudan Barunian had a lot to do with what your next project was. Um, could you kind of tell me a little bit about right before Night Arc and then how Night Arc was formed? Because I don't know if a lot of people know this particular story. Yeah, well, Sudan had his band Taksim, and still does, by the way. It's probably going on 40 years. Um, and Haig Manukyan, the guy I mentioned before, um, was, was the Oud player. But at that time, for whatever reason, I'm not even sure, uh, Haig was not in the group. And so Sudan needed an Oud player for some gigs in New York. And it's a, he, his group is like a, ja a Middle Eastern jazz group. Um, and he asked me if I would like to do it. Well, I wasn't doing anything and I was kind of depressed and I thought, okay, this is an opportunity uh, to get a little busy. And so uh, um, I remember going to the first rehearsal, which was at a percussion player's apartment in, in Manhattan, upper Manhattan. And Sudan counted off the first piece and we started playing. And within 30 seconds, I had forgotten everybody in the band. I had ignored all of them, and I was just looking at the drummer, and <laughs> and he was looking at me. And, and we were with our eyes. We were saying, "Okay, as soon as this rehearsal's finished, we gotta talk." And so, um, who was that percussionist? So that percussionist was Arto Arto Tunjboyajian. And when the rehearsal was finished, you know, who are you? Forget me. Who are you? You know. 
and that was that was it. That was that was my way out of my depression um, because in Arto I had found uh, yet another soulmate who I never had to explain anything musically and indeed uh, he he raised my music to an even higher level and uh, that was the beginning yeah and and this is uh what, this is what, what 1983 1984 i think the claude knobs thing was in 1980 but um when 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 was this around circa 83 84 something like that something like that yes all right so you and otto kind of form this musical bond and um, and I'm just going to kind of go off of what I know from the albums. Uh, Armin Donelian, also a really prominent um, pianist, composer, um, becomes a part of your group. Is that correct? Well, at, at first, you know, Arto and I were, were sharing ideas and songs. And I said, look, I, I've written all these pieces. And so we were just kind of wondering, well, what do we need? besides percussion and my instruments. And, uh, you know, we decided uh, we need a bass and we need keyboards. Mm -hmm. And so we started looking around for people who were not only good, but sympathetic to this idea. Yeah. Um, and, and we went through several, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we wound up actually with, uh, with Shamira Shahinyan, Playing, playing the the piano and keyboards on the first album. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Very, and, very interesting. And uh, uh, what's his name on bass? Uh, Ed Schuler on bass. That's Gunther Schuler's son. Wow. Uh, yeah. The, the composer, right? Gunther. Uh, unbelievable. Schuller. Unbelievable. Yeah. And um, look, look. The, the the story of of Night Arc is another example of things just happening without you even realizing it or unintentionally. Uh, we, we, we didn't have this intention of, Hey, we're going to do this, this new fusion of, you know, Middle East and jazz. And, you know, the, we, we had no conscious decision. I was just writing music that I wanted to play and hear myself. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll just continue with, with the next oh. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a list of questions, but you're probably going to hit most of them. So just, well, just I was I was living in an apartment in Nutley, New Jersey. I had no money. I had no job. And, and I only had two thousand dollars to my name. And I decided that I had this fatalistic, you know, approach to life that, well, if I die, nobody will know uh, what I what I have written. So I'm going to take that two thousand dollars and go to a studio and record my songs in a, in a professional manner once, once and for all. So with that group, with the four of us, I, I hired the best uh, studio I could afford in New York. And this, this engineer who I didn't realize it at the time was a renowned engineer named David Baker. And uh, I could only wow. afford four hours and I couldn't afford multi-tracking. It was going to go, stereo direct two track uh and so i had all these weird instruments you know canons and ouds and jimbushes and portuguese mandolins and whatever all this music and we just started recording live and at first the engineer was a bit stuck up not 
not really treating us so well. But when we finished recording, I noticed that the, re the, rec the what's the name of it? Uh, the control room was filled with assistant engineers and <laughs> even other musicians because that whole building was, was uh, studios. And apparently, as we were recording, word started to get around that something weird is happening, something different is happening. And by the time we were done, that control room was filled. Wow. So, you know, I, I walked in there and I said, uh, how did it sound, David? And he looked at me and he said, who are you? And I, I said, what do you mean? I've been talking to you for two days about this. What do you mean? Who are he said, but I, what is this music? I said, I don't know. It's my music, you know, <laughs> almost like argumentative, you know. And suddenly he, his attitude had changed and he, he asked if he could have a copy. I said, yeah, of course. I didn't, I didn't know anything about copies or copyrights or publishing or I, I didn't know anything. Right. Totally naive to the whole thing. Yeah. Without me knowing it, he made copies and sent them to people in the industry. And within a week, I'm sitting in my apartment wondering how am I going to pay the rent and I get a call from RCA Records who say they want to sign me, and I didn't even know what they were talking about. <laughs> but, uh, again, there, there you go. It's, it's my, my, my luck. That's amazing. And it, it wasn't just RCA Records. It was RCA Novus at the right. time. Right. And um, so I, I guess my question is, did, did that particular studio session, did that become the final product, or was that just more, more, more of a demo? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. So, so now RCA, um, actually, the first thing they wanted to do is they wanted me to come with one of my instruments to their office just to confirm that I am who is on that demo tape. So I'm literally in this office in Manhattan with my little Portuguese mandolin playing a few bars of one of the numbers. And they're like, OK, OK, you're, you're that guy. I'm like, yeah, OK, now what? They said, okay, we're preparing uh, contracts and we want you to make a record. I said, but I made the record. No, no, no. We, you're going to do it in a professional studio with, with multi-tracks and overdubbing and all, all these things that, I, again, I didn't have any experience with. But I said, okay, fine. And, of course, we redid the record. Um, a couple of the things were not as good on the record as they were on the demo. You're kidding. Do you still have that demo? Of course. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, it, it, what is this? Is this 84, 85? Is that, is that kind of what we're talking about here? Something like that, yeah. Okay, because I know the album, your debut album came out in, in 86. But, right. um, you know, what, what was that studio experience like? I mean, um, obviously you're going from a great, great studio working with Baker, very well known in the industry, um, David Baker, to now the full experience. Um, what did you feel those first couple days and throughout the experience of, of now being um, a recording artist? I, I had never been so excited in all my life. I was, uh, uh, couldn't wait to get in there to, to, to work. The, the great thing about David, and we, he became one of my dearest, dearest friends, and uh, we lost him several years ago, uh, which is one of the great losses in my life because oh, I owe him so, so much. Um, the great thing about him, besides his talent, was he knew how, how naive I was about uh, the, the industry and, and the recording process. And he took the time 
every step of the way to show me what he was doing, what could be done, what my options were. Um, like I, I was playing something and the whole take was great, but I flubbed a note and I didn't say anything, but he saw that I was a little depressed. He, he asked me, what's wrong? I said, oh, that one note. He said, we, we could fix that. I said, oh, I can't play the whole song again. He said, no, we could just fix that one note. So he explained all of these things to me and I, I'll never forget mixing with him. I didn't even know what mixing was. Um, and then when it was all mixed, I couldn't wait, you know, okay, let's make the record. He says, no, now it has to be mastered. I didn't know what mastering was. So he said, well, you come with me. I'm going to show you what mastering is. And Rafi, we go to a mastering house. And it is, do you know who mastered that record? No. Bob Ludwig. Oh my God. Could you explain who he is for people well, that don't know? Bob Ludwig is, you could say, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Barbara Streisand. I mean, he, he, <laughs> he's the man. Of course, I didn't yeah. know that. I didn't even know what mastering was. But here, yeah. this guy, he puts on the tape and, and he starts turning his dials, making something that I thought was magical, even more magical. I, I, I thought I was in a dream. Yeah. So you're asking me, how was the experience? Uh, I, I wish everybody could, could have that kind of joy in their life. Ara, you've got three beautiful children. Um, and, um, but I, I want to kind of make an analogy to having children. I, I'm not a parent myself. I, I've not had children, but, um, you know, I, I want you to kind of tell me about that moment, the exact moment that they put the LP of picture in your hand and the feeling of basically taking the cellophane off of there the very first time that you saw it. Okay. Um, the record came out on cassette, LP, and CD. I did not have a CD player. Those were new. I bought a CD player just so I could play my own CD and say that I played my own CD. Regarding how, how it felt, uh, this is going to be very melodramatic, and, and I don't know if it's something that your, your listeners would care to hear. But I was alone in my apartment, and uh, uh, I put the record on, and I, I just started to weep because it was the culmination of, of what I had dreamed. Again, I was thinking if I die today, at least something is going to represent my view on life, who I was and how I felt about the world. It, it was a sense, they were tears not of sadness, but of, of great relief. That's beautiful. And I, I um, you know, as a record label owner and a producer, I remember that first moment that I got the first, you know, copy of the album that I, I produced back in 2001. And I said, you know, I don't have children, but if I did, this feels like almost having a child in, in some weird way. Yeah. And um, so, you know, thank you for sharing that, that with us. Um, let, let's kind of get to uh, the reaction to this album, because I think that there was some Grammy Award um, uh, notice when it, come, when it came to this particular album. And then let's, let's get into genres a little bit. But how was this particular album received? 
as far as I was concerned, in America, it was completely disregarded. There was no reaction. Um, and that kind of depressed me, even though we were asked to make a second record, and that one got even less reaction. What I didn't realize was that RCA having international distribution, those records were being made available throughout the world where there was a, a very serious reaction. I, had, I have since heard from scores of musicians who said that upon hearing those records, it was as if they were unchained because so many of these countries apparently have certain, uh, I don't know if they're rules or laws or methods of making music what is music? What is not music? What is this genre? What is not that genre? And and they were they were tied to whatever tradition they were forced to to perform or record. Whereas in America, we're free to do whatever we we want. That doesn't mean you're going to get rich or successful. But nobody's telling you, oh, you can't put a jumbush with a piano. Nobody's saying that. So in a in an ironic way, Night Arc could only have been born in America, but subsequently could only survive uh, in Europe, in the Middle East. It's, it's interesting you mention that because um, I'm going to tell you a little story. And I'm going to tell you the first time that I met you. I was 18 years old, uh, living in Chicago. I was going to a college in Chicago, uh, commuting from my parents' house to school before I moved to Boston for my junior and senior year. And I was making money on the side working at a record store. And I was working at a rather large record store called Sound Warehouse, 1988. Um, I had a friend of the family, an Armenian friend of the family, while I was at the register, say, you're not gonna believe it, but Ada's on this album. And I, and I looked at this album, and it, was, it looked like it was a, a body of water with some mountains in the back, with some sort of image, you know, kind of intercut on, on, the, uh, on the front of the cover. And then you flipped it around, and you saw these instruments, the, the kanun, the jumbush, the oud. And Arto's name spelled Arto Tunchboyaji. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, who, who are these people? He's like, well, it's Ada. It's, it's Onik's kid. It's Ada. And I'm like, where did you find this? He's like, back there. He motioned back there. It was a very big store. And, you know, and I, I'm just going to say this uh, kind of raw, but somewhere in the mess of Yanni Kitaro and Andres Bolenvider, um, <laughs> these, uh, in the section of frickin' New Age, there was your music. And I... I immediately purchased the only other copy of Moments that was there. And then I immediately purchased um, Picture, which, by the way, did not have Worm on it. That was a, that was a CD bonus, but I didn't have money back then to, to, to do that. And um, that's the first time I met you. And the reason I say that is because um, I had been listening to your dad's music and John Barbarian and Roger Krikorian and all of these in Hachi Kazarian all these great artists, and I bet you were on those albums, somewhere in the background, playing bass guitar, 
And when I was mowing my lawn, I, I would get these um, recordings through actually Michael Kazarian, Kachik's uh, son. And so I would hear all these songs. I'd hear the oud. I'd hear the the doombag. I'd hear you know all the traditional instruments that we that we know of. But the fact that this was recorded in the digital age and was available on a CD blew my mind, and the sound quality of it blew my mind. But more than anything, this music actually spoke to me. It actually spoke to me because I couldn't put a finger on, is this Armenian music? Is, is this Anatolian music? Is this, this is jazz. This, this is Carole King. It was one of the most crazy musical listens I had had up until that point. And since then, I've, you know, I've been following you and your music um, ever since then, you know, 32 years later. But the irony and kind of the shame of, of all, all of this is that I, I, when I grew up, I, I grew up in record stores, but I, I played violin, played a little oud, whatever. But I've always grown up having to know that you have to segment music to, to market it. That I've always kind of thought of it in that process. And you were in a area of music called New Age, which at the time was fairly big but really did not represent the type of music that you were putting out. You were actually well ahead of the game with ethno-jazz, maybe even an extension of, of Sudan Baronian, who knows. But um, it didn't sell. I, I, I never saw those albums come to the register. I, I, don't, I don't even know how many copies you really sold in the United States. But the irony of all this is that that music traveled overseas. And, and did you know that these songs were being embraced the, the way that they were because they were ignored in the United States. Did you know that these songs were actually becoming incredibly popular to some of the most popular songs in their respective countries? Uh, no, we were not aware of it. And, and there were, there's two levels of what was happening overseas. One is just like you said, the songs were becoming popular because uh, many people were writing lyrics and singing them. Um, but the other thing, and to me, it is just as important, if not more, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, the musicians felt liberated, like they could they could explore. Uh, it's allowed. It it could work, and th that is that is very gratifying. Absolutely, and so at the time that these records were selling, um, was RCA letting you know? that, listen, you, you, you've got this incredible, these incredible um, sales going on overseas, or were a lot of these quote-unquote sales actual bootlegs? That's a huge question, Rafi. Uh, you know, I was nothing to R RCA. RCA was all about Elvis reissues. Uh, they had started this new age line, as you said, called uh, Novus, and even when they had brought me in, they said, is your music new age? And I said, uh, what? And they said, you know, new age is very hot now. Is it, is it new age? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It's, it's new age. It's new age. <laughs> uh, because I, I wanted to get, you know, <laughs> recorded. Um, but, you know, as you're saying, you know, these categories come and go. Um, but the important thing was to, was to get it down. Uh, and have it documented, and and I was one of the lucky ones that that it went somewhere, uh, not not in my uh, own backyard, 
but somewhere out there. And no, we were not aware of what was happening at the time. Out of the burning question I've got that I don't believe I've ever kind of asked you personally was there were a lot of covers on those first two albums. There was, of course, Blackbird, You've Got a Friend. Uh, you had some other kind of compositions on there, Over the Rainbow, which I, I wonder if it actually, your choice of that goes back to another classic recording of that uh, on those 78s. But were, were you kind of, I'm not going to say forced, but was it suggested that since you're in this new age category, you maybe have to have it sound like this and you have to kind of record kind of these standards? Or was that completely all your decision? On the first record, I included Blackbird. Um, and it's because there's two reasons. First, I'm a Beatle maniac and remain so. And, and the other is I wanted to intentionally put a piece that if people were to be browsing and they pick up the record and they see these weird instruments, of course, they're not going to recognize the names of the performers or the songs. But if they see a song that they're familiar with, oh, I, I love uh, Blackbird. Oh, on the Oud? Well, maybe that's interesting. It might get them to get the record and then hear my music. So that was kind of done intentionally. One well-known song. Uh, but also to, to have them accept not only the Oud, but therefore in the future, well, keep your mind open for any instrument. Don't judge the instrument. Listen, see if you like it. After that record, um, yes, actually, RCA did request that I do a lot of covers. <laughs> um, and it was sort of like a tug of war. I, I, I gave a couple, but I wasn't willing to do more than that. I, I chose uh, You've Got a Friend because uh, I loved James Taylor's uh, version of that. Uh, and Over the Rainbow was my tribute to Chick Kanimian, who had recorded it in 1958. Okay, good. So that's the answer to that. Um, because I just recently heard Chick Kanimian's version of it, and it's, it is beautiful. It's beautiful, and, isn't it? And, and each one of your renditions is beautiful. So I, I, I appreciate that answer because um, the fact that you pay tribute to Chick Kanimian, who, again, is another legendary um, musician and Udist, um, that kind of confirms, I think, uh, well, for sure, what, what I had thought. Now, one of the places uh, that your music traveled to was Greece. And so you're, you're sitting there in 1986, the, 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 the picture album comes out. I believe that your group is nominated for Best New Age Album. And then uh, 1988 comes and Moments comes out. You guys, you're doing your jobs. You're you're basically you know doing your gigs. Uh, you're you're probably going ahead and you know concertizing you know with this group in the United States, probably more so in NYC. And and then uh, you start to get the news that that these songs are starting to be well received in other places. Um, this is kind of an interesting transition to maybe where you're, and I say this, you know, sincerely. You became kind of a superstar um, in, in Greece. And um, it, it seemed like Eleftheria Arvanitaki, a great vocalist, um, took your compositions and 
brought them to a newer kind of audience. And, and could you kind of tell me how that whole thing happened? Because in my opinion, if I'm kind of looking at your, your career here thus far, this was a, another kind of phase where uh, your career kind of really, really ascended. Yeah, the, the funny thing is somebody had, had come to my house and said, you know, your, your song is popular in Greece. And I said, oh, you mean the, the Night Arc? No, 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 some singer. I said, well, how do you know? He said, oh, I was in Greece and I was in the taxi and I heard some woman singing your song. Well, what's her name? Oh, I don't know. I'm like, oh, boy. So what I did is I got in the car and I drove to Astoria, which is a big Greek community here in New York. And I went into their huge record store. And I went over to the cashier and I started whistling my song. And immediately the cashier said, oh, I left there. You know, I said, OK, whoever that is, let me have that CD. You know, I. I bought the CD, took it home, and she had two of my songs on there. And I wasn't aware of this. Uh, okay, my name was was credited as composer, but, you know, ironically, about a month later, I get a phone call from Greece, and it's Eleftheria Arvanitaki. And she introduces herself and says, you know, I recorded a couple of your songs. I, I would like some more songs because they were very popular. They, it was a big hit for me, and I want more songs. And I said, you have some nerve asking for more songs when I wasn't even paid for the first ones that you did. And immediately she said, but I was in touch with your company. I did everything the right way. I said, do you have any paperwork? Yes, honey, I will fax it right now. I said, you faxed that paperwork to me. Don't you know, 60 seconds later, I get faxes between her company and my company. My own company never notified me or paid me. This is RCA? Yes. Okay, got it. Now, um, Which at the time, I had a co-publishing agreement, so 50% of the publishing uh, belonged to them. Yes. So once, once it was, once I determined in my very non, uh, you know, uh, educated way that, well, she's telling the truth. I, I agreed to come to Greece to bring her an, another song. So what I did is I, I, had, I had about 20 songs and I was hoping I could sell one to her. You know, I was newly married. I have little kids, you know, I need money. So they fly me to Athens and I'm in her apartment and she has her husband there and her hairstylist and her friend and her lyricist and five record company people and, and they're all speaking Greek and I don't understand anything and I'm all alone and it's kind of weird and they put my cassette in the machine and for one hour they listen to my 20 songs and I'm just sitting there drinking my you know water. And then they start speaking Greek again. And then they look at me and say, can we play the cassette again? Oh, here we go again. Another hour. They're listening to all the songs and they talk in Greek again. And then finally they say, we want to record an album of all of your songs. So not only I was going to sell one, but it looked like I was going to sell them all. Amazing. Uh, another, you see my life, how blessed I am. 
So incredible. I came back and I told my wife, Margot, sweetheart, it, it, it's great. They want all of the songs. Otto, what, uh, if I may just kind of, um, kind of guess at the time frame here, I'm guessing that Elefteria Vanitaki making those legal albums, but RCA not necessarily reciprocating with you um, as far as the accounting is concerned. I'm assuming that those came out sometime in 1990, 1991. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about right. That's about when, right. Did you, when did you enter into your, I'm not going to say agreement, but, but your collaboration well, the, the publishing agreement was part of of the contract when I first uh, made the first Nighthawk record. You know, they they were uh, co-publishers, fifty percent, fifty-fifty with my publishing company. And uh, and at that time, in between, um, in between, well, around around nineteen ninety, that publishing agreement uh, was about to expire. And so I asked them if they intend to uh, renew, and they said no. So I retained 100% of my publishing, and just then, you know, my music started to become popular in, in Europe with, through the singers, and I have never given 1% since then. Excellent, excellent. So... I mean, um, you know, and everybody makes mistakes, but 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 thank goodness that RCA put you in the new age category. So you <laughs> so you kind of went under the radar, and you maybe sold a lot less than you were hoping, and a lot less than they were hoping, which in the long run actually uh, netted you 100% of your publishing, which is right. which is right. amazing. So this this meeting with Arvani Taki in Greece. Um, what what year is that? Is that ninety one, ninety two? Is that is that around that time? Boy, I'm I'd have to look those things up, and I could get them for you, uh, but I I I don't Sounds know. Like it was the early nineties. It was the early nineties, yeah. yeah. and I think at this point it's really important for listeners to understand that the monster hit that would eventually come forward was not part of those original two songs. I, I believe. I believe uh, they were based on a composition of Offering, and there was one other song, I can't remember myself, but it wasn't the remake of Homecoming, which uh, would put you in a different stratosphere. We did a, an album, actually, the, the, the continuation of the story is I, when I went back to America, about a month later, she called me up from the studio and said, we can't play these songs. And I said, what are you talking about? Well, my my musicians don't understand some of them, you know, like because some of them were in ten eight, uh, like time signatures that Armenians might be familiar with, but not Greeks. Uh, yeah. And I, well, what do you want from me? You bought the songs. What are you saying? <laughs> well, can you come here and record? I said, well, okay, yes, of course I can. But if I if I come and it's a, a, a it's a a beat problem, I have to come with a percussionist. Yes, bring your percussionist. So I brought Arco with me, and we started from scratch where we, we laid down all the foundations. He played all the percussion, and I played, you know, all the jumbush and ouds and all, whatever, you know, saz and all that other stuff. And they, they started the layering and all that other stuff. And, uh, and, yeah, and they released, I think, four singles from that record. And, and it, it actually, forgive me for boasting like this but i'm it was voted i think one of the top 20 no 
one of the top most important recordings in Greece history. Absolutely, and I could see why. Um, that album was called something with the knives, right? Um, Bodies and the Knives. Bodies and the Knives, which is an incredible album for people that want to track that one down. It's an incredible album. However, it didn't include <clears throat> what would eventually be your, your signature song. Um, when I listened to Picture for the first time in 1988, even though it was released in 86, there was one song in that album that absolutely blew me away, and that was Homecoming. That was a bona fide hit record, as they say. Um, when, I was in a, when I was in Greek town in 94, uh, I went back to Chicago for a little while. Uh, they they played this cut because I, I was always looking for Yorgos uh, Dalaras albums, uh, being a big fan of him and his uh, and his vocal style. And <clears throat> the guy behind the counter was like, uh, we, "We there's this song here that uh, everybody's going crazy for in Greece," and he's like, "It's called Dinata," and I'm like, "Okay, well you know listen to it," and then I'm like, "Wait, that's Arto's wacky vocals." I said, no, this is called Homecoming. Like, no, 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 it's called Dinata. And that recording, that live recording, and as far as I know, there's no studio recording of Dinata in that era. That became arguably one of the most popular songs in Greek history. That, yeah, we, after the Bodies and the Knives was released, uh, we started uh, touring, you know, for a couple of years uh, all over Greece and actually all over the world. Uh, and one of the concerts we did was in Athens and it was outdoors. There were 7,000 people. And that's where that recording came from. It was released as what they call a CD single. I think there were three pieces on there. And it yep. became the biggest selling CD single in Greek music history. I paid 12 bucks for that CD single. <laughs> so I just want to let you know, 1994, right. those, those guys were ripping me off, let me tell you. But it, I, I hope every penny uh, you know, went, went to you, but uh, we know how that goes. Um, so at this point, at this point, I mean, you're, you are a bona fide star in, in Greece. Uh, no need to be humble here. You're a bona fide star in Greece. You are a high-profile, well-known figure um, because – they're not just releasing albums, they're releasing videos and concerts on TV in Greece. Um, what was it like being a star, actually? Uh, well, there's a question that I can't answer, uh, and it's not false modesty or anything. You, you got to be careful about that stuff. Uh, you can't build walls in between you and anybody. Um, you are not... Let me, let me explain it to you this way, Rafi. I am not different had those songs not been sung by a famous singer and, and become popular. I'm the same person. I still felt that music and wrote it. And uh, whether it, it got discovered or not doesn't, doesn't change uh, who I am and should not change who I am. I should basically rephrase it and, and say, now that more people had access to your composition, um, through television, through radio, um, through videos and concerts. Um, and I'm not saying that it affected your behavior or your, um, your ego or anything like that, but the crowd started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Um, and and yeah. how did you feel okay. about it? Yes, uh, I'm sorry if I misunderstood. Well, what it did was it gave me a career. It, it gave me this invaluable uh, opportunity to travel throughout the world and meet thousands of people and yes, and make some money, but more importantly, make music and make uh, connections with other musicians and composers and singers. Uh, I, I'm, I, I never dreamed that big. I, I just wanted to write some music. Um, I never dreamed that big, but it, it gave me uh, even more than I had ever dreamt. This concludes part two of my conversation with Ara Dinkchun. The third and final part will be released next week on June 16th. We'll wrap things up with Ara's experiences in Israel, Turkey, and Armenia, as well as an update on his current project, The Secret Trio. I wanted to clarify and correct a few points as mentioned in the conversation you just heard. In 1991, Elefteri Advanitaki released an album called Menoektos. That album's title track was a remake of the song Picture, not Offering, as I had suggested. Furthermore, the other studio track that was featured on that album was, in fact, Dinata, a remake of Homecoming. These were the tracks that Ada referred to as being recorded and released without him being informed by RCA before entering into a more formal collaboration with Eleftheria. But, more importantly, the version of Dinata that was a global sensation and one of the most successful singles of all time in Greece at the time was a live version that Ada mentioned, which was recorded while on tour with the Bodies and the Knives tour, sometime around or after 1994. Before ending the program with a track from Ada's new album with the Secret Trio and New York Gypsy All-Stars, I wanted to recommend a couple of albums that you may enjoy on my own pomegranate music record label. For those who enjoy Ada's compositions, I released a pair of albums on my label that featured Duduk Masters, Arsen Petrosyan, and Harutun Chukolyan, respectively. Arsen's album is called Charen Savan and features his rendition of Ada's Lullaby for the Sun on Duduk. That was released in 2015. Harutun's album is called Armenian Soundscapes and features two of Ada's songs in Offering, which is set to the duduk, while The Long Goodbye has Harutun performing on the Ney flute. That one was recorded in 2016. Thanks again for listening in. Let's close out this podcast with a new song from Ada's new album, Live from Princeton University. This one is called Common Spirit. Talk to you next time. Let's go.
All music featured on this podcast is presented with permission from the publisher and sound copyright owner. Both songs featured today are published by Creecore Music. This is a Pomegranate Music production.